Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending October 9th, 2020. This is our 51st video cast and our 41st podcast, so welcome. And as always, we're going to kick it off with our media spots where we cover a lot of information in a short period of time. So first off, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown on Tuesday. And the question there was obviously about stimulus and about Powell's talking points. And the key takeaway here, the point that I made was what was most likely before the election is an executive order from President Trump. Uh, there's over $300 billion that was not spent in the uh, original CARES Act that had been approved by Congress for spending. And there's 200 years of precedent that gives the executive branch pretty good discretion on the reallocation and we'll talk about some of the um, legal precedent behind that later in this podcast and I thought that was the most likely outcome. Now there has been a lot of rhetoric back and forth this week uh, and the market's been pricing in a bigger deal maybe after the election. Senate's not back until the 19th. There are a lot of underlying issues that I don't know are going to get resolved and it just generally feels like it's being slow walked so as not to get um, any uh, uh, you know, uh, big positive outcomes before the election. So uh, my sense, again, is that you're probably going to see an executive order and uh, the administration will figure out whether or not it, there is a deal to be done. They did come up to $1.8 trillion uh, today, but uh, I, I think it's the language underneath it that's going to really drag it forward and, and not enable it to get through the Senate. So, uh, however... You know, 300 billion, you know, somewhere between three and 400 billion, if they could get that through, that would be enough for uh, an extension of PPP, an extension of the enhanced unemployment for those most in need, and some type of stimulus check. And what I mentioned on uh, Fox Business with Liz was that there was a study done about the first stimulus check, the that uh, which the whole package was about 300 billion. 60% of that money, everyone thought, well, it goes to the people who need it the most, that it's all spent, and it's not the case. 60% went to savings and paying down debt. And the point that I made and what Liz was asking for and the producers is, what's the trade out of the stimulus? And the trade is actually the big four banks. Uh, they're over-reserved by as much as $23 billion. We're going to talk about that a, a lot, and especially as timely now going into earnings on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week, the banks start re reporting. Um, and when they took these reserves in Q2, if you remember, this was the time that we put out that article on MarketWatch on March 19th when we compared it to the Spanish flu, and we said that uh, you know, the market's probably not going to go down a whole lot more. It was down 33%, and I think the Spanish flu was down 35 And sure enough, within days, it, re it rebounded and never looked back. Um, is that when the banks were taking these reserves in accordance with the new accounting standard, CECL, which required them for the first time to take 100% of expected losses in a worst-case scenario all up front, which they did in Q2, um, there was talk about 20% unemployment. A lot of people were talking about 20% unemployment and double digit, you know, negative 12% GDP growth was thrown around willy nilly. And, and the IMF was at the forefront of, of that type of languaging. 
And um, so keep in mind that the reserves they took not only were excessive due to the accounting standard change, but they were excessive due to the sentiment and outlook of the environment at that point in time. If you remember, Jamie Dimon wrote a note that was, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, very cloudy view and worrisome view at that point. So not only can we see a lot of these reserves come back as uh, income and as earnings in future quarters, I think they're going to have to take them down because um, there is no longer a 20% unemployment on the table as, as we're now at uh, came in last week at just below 8%. We hit 7.9% unemployment, regained well over half the jobs that were lost due to COVID. Continuing claims continue to come down every single week and beat expectations. So, um, so the, as it relates to a stimulus check, if 60% of, let's call it another $300 billion package, and we don't know exactly what we're going to get, that's $180 billion of uh, savings and debt pay down. And the biggest beneficiary that no one is paying attention to is going to be the banks because the big four banks um, took about uh, $33 billion of credit loss reserves in Q2 of 2020 versus $5 billion in 2019. The majority of that was attributable to just the accounting change. About um, So I, I, I do think they're over-reserved by about... Uh, you know, 23 billion or so, give or take. And I think on on the whole, the industry is about $111 billion of credit reserves. So if you had 60% of 300 billion, $180 billion going into savings and paying down debt, those reserves have to be expunged. And that's $100 billion of earnings power uh, in aggregate. That's a hundred percent not priced into these stocks. So uh, the question is, how quickly are the reserves released? And uh, you have seen in recent weeks uh, uh, talk about that from uh, Jamie Dimon talking about reserve releases, um, John Shrewsbury, the outgoing CFO of Wells Fargo, and who's the only person left from when they had the problems in 2018 when the asset cap was put on. So I don't see any reason for the regulators to retain the $1.96 trillion lending asset cap once the last member of the leadership that was that was around during the time of the aggressive sales practices is no longer there. Um, and also, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America was talking about reserve releases and uh, um, uh, credit behavior coming in much better than expected. So uh, I'm excited for earnings on Tuesday and Wednesday. The big four start to report. But keep in mind, if you get that stimulus check, yeah, you'll get $100, $120 billion of spending in the economy. But uh, more than that, uh, you're going to get a lot of debt pay down and the banks will be great beneficiaries of that and they'll have to take those reserves down for sure. So I uh, want to thank again Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown. And moving right along, uh, on the same night, um, I was on CGTN Global Business and... Rochelle Akufo, I'd like to thank you and also Dalal Pektas for having me on the show. And on that show, we were talking, you know, it was interesting. When I was on with uh, Liz, it was literally minutes after President Trump had tweeted 
that, you know, that the deal's off. And all of a sudden the market went from being up materially to just dropping like a rock. Uh, and I think I said, at that point, he was just coming through the coronavirus. I said, well, the good news is the president is feeling better the bad, as evidenced by his tweets. The bad news is you might not get a stimulus package. So, uh, so later that night, as the dust settled, I was able to go through some of these factors with Rochelle. And um, the one thing that is that she wanted to talk about was the IMF having come out with uh, that they were potentially going to take a small upward revision for global GDP uh, based on $12 trillion of uh, global fiscal stimulus has been put into the system uh, just in the last six months, which is just staggering because that excludes the impact of global coordinated monetary policy. Um, global debt to GDP is now um, 100%. Uh, that you have to assume over time is going to get um, inflated away, you know, as a, as a ratio. So uh, you definitely want to own assets in that environment uh, uh, because they'll go, grow in nominal terms. But, um, you know, the, the point that I made about the IMF is, is that you have to take it with a grain of salt. I understand, you know, number one, they want to keep the pressure on so that uh, people don't pull their fiscal stimulus too early. So, you know, there's been a huge push to get the U.S. to do another huge package, both by the world, because we're the biggest economy and the most important economy in the world. And um, two, it was on the same day that Chair Powell was talking. So you had... Um, the IMF chief talking about, you know, the dangers of early fiscal stimulus withdrawal and um, and then you had Powell saying there's no risk of overdoing it. It's wrong time to take the foot off the gas. If you don't do the fiscal stimulus, you're going to increase uh, inequality. So the pressure was on. Congress did not blink yet. They seem like they're getting closer. But, you know, my concern here is there are a considerable number of people that are not part of the more than half of the people who have gotten their jobs back yet that are at jobs where, you know, the businesses were just flat out shut down that really need this money. And I think that President Trump's got to just step up, even if it's in a gray area. There's 200 years of precedent. But if it's a legal gray area, just authorize the redistribution of these checks and let the opposition sue you and, and let the people know that, you know, the effort was made to get these checks into the hands of the most needy, and it was held up. And I think it would be crazy for the opposition to help hold that up. That should go out, uh, out and then negotiate everything else after the election when, you know, both sides can see where the chips fall. But get the money in the hands of the most desperate small businesses and lower income people that, that need a stimulus. So um, at the point I made to Rochelle is that uh, you definitely have to take it with a grain of salt because the IMF was the most neg has always been the most conservative. They had the U.S. GDP at negative eight percent just a couple of months ago. Uh, now we're going to come in at negative three point five percent, and we're going to be up six percent next year. We've had twenty five percent money supply growth year on year, uh, and uh, China, even China they had at plus one. They're going to come in at plus two point three and plus seven next year. So. Um, you know, the name of the game here is there's a tremendous amount of money in the system, $12 trillion fiscal stimulus, which, you know, people have been prior to February, everyone had been begging like monetary policy is pushing on a string. If we could just get 
Europe and you know uh, U.S. to come together on some fiscal policy. Well, we got 12 trillion in the last six months, and as these businesses reopen, and yeah, cases are spiking up, but you know people are just tired. They're they're just like I'm going to get on with my life. I'm putting on my mask when I go out, and we're just going to go about it. And the treatments have gotten so much better that the death rate has declined precipitously, and we certainly had a great um, uh, case of that with the, with the president this week. And uh, and his willingness to take a very experimental drug on Friday, which turned him around within 24 hours, which is just amazing. Um, you know, prior to his taking it, the only data we had was literally three days before he was diagnosed on Tuesday. Phase one data on the um, uh, monoc mon monoclonal uh, antibody cocktail from Regeneron, 275 patients took took the duration of symptoms down from 13 down to six. Now, Regeneron today put out some new data that says their treatment course takes the uh, duration, I believe, from 13 days down to five days. The problem with the Regeneron is uh, the problem with Gilead, uh, in my view, is number one, you know, in the case of President Trump, the Regeneron cocktail, it's just a one shot thing. You take a he took what they call a light dose I guess it's a handful of pills. Um, I, I, I actually don't even know, and I'm not sure if it has to be administered in a hospital or not, but it's a one-shot deal and you feel better instantly. The remdesivir, you have to take five doses, five days in a row in a hospital. Now, they had been working on a breathable version, which would be a complete game changer. I mean, if you could get like an asthma inhaler and if you got a fever and you got a COVID test, a rapid test back positive, and you could just go to, the, go to your teledoc get your script from the local pharmacy and inhale remdesivir once a day for five days without going to the hospital, that's probably more important and more valuable to society and to the world than a vaccine because everyone will do that. So, um, you know, stay tuned because I know they're working on that and we could wake up one morning and it's, it's ready to go. Everyone knows remdesivir works. It's just a cost prohibitive and um, logistically prohibitive uh, treatment source and that could change overnight just like we saw with the Regeneron and now both Regeneron and Lilly who have uh, monoclonal and polyclonal antibody uh, treatments that now we're seeing really work well certainly on on a uh, high risk case based on age and, and different things um, it's it's very exciting and I think this was a movement uh, and you saw it in cyclicals continuing their rotation after having outperformed tech in September, which we've been calling for. Uh, if you've been with us since August and before, it's really happening and it's gaining steam. So we're gonna spend a lot of time on that today. Um, you know, we discussed also with Rochelle um, some of the China data and some of the um, election and tax implications, which we've gone through in recent weeks. So, uh, so that was basically that. Thank you to Rochelle Akufo and Dalal Pektes for having me on CGTN Global Business. On Monday, I had the pleasure to be on CNBC Indonesia. That was 4.30 local time, 5.30 a.m. our time uh, on, on the East Coast. And we covered quite a number of factors regarding the uh, emerging markets, the long-term commodity cycle outlook, the um, China China recovery data, and uh, they were also very interested in uh, President Trump's, you know, treatment and recovery, 
and implications on the election. And I think the big the big takeaway I had on Monday with Maria Katerina, and I also want to thank Yolaiwan Haryana for inviting me on. Uh, and that was a nice long segment about uh, 15, 20 minutes. And um, is that, uh, you know, we don't know. We we do. You know, there have been a number of notes out by the by the same analysts, uh, well-known analysts on the street over the summer, were saying that if it's a blue sweep, you'll lose twenty dollars of S and P earnings, and um, you know the market will re-rate. Those same analysts now that the polls are, you know, opinion follows trends, so the polls are trending in favor of a Biden victory. Although we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, now they're saying, well, yeah, you might lose a bunch of earnings, but, you know, if you get a blue sweep, you'll get uh, fiscal stimulus. You're going to get fiscal stimulus either way. So it's not a valid argument, number one. Number two, the other argument was that, well, you know, maybe the t maybe the corporate tax rate won't increase from 21 to 28 percent until 2023. OK, uh, I got a bridge to sell you. If you get a sweep of power, you ain't going to wait till after the midterm election to affect a corporate tax rate increase. So good luck with that one. Now, the other thing that wasn't in the headlines of that note was that the expectation was that it would be a net neutral if you got a blue sweep because the short-term loss in earnings would be offset by 2023, three, four years out from an increase of fiscal spending if you had a blue sweep. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a loose argument because number one, you don't know what's going to happen in the midterms. And number two, why would you take such a huge short-term loss for a break-even? It's like giving away three, three years of your life. Hey, I got great news. You're going to get hit in the stomach. But four years from now, you can be right back to where you were. That would be a great thing, wouldn't it? So um, leaving that aside, the other salient argument is that uh, they believe that uh, the trade negotiations with China will go more smoothly uh, and that could be beneficial to GDP. So there's there's a lot of reaching from the same um, credible uh, analysts who were more pessimistic when the polls were looking different. So let's just, we don't know. Let, let's just put it that way. It's probably not, you know, if you think it's going to be really bad, it's probably not going to be that bad. If you think it's going to be really great, if you got a red sweep, it's probably not going to be that great. So uh, <laughs> that's just generally the way it turns out. It's probably going to be something in the middle. So um, leaving that aside, uh, the point that I did make with Maria was that on that date exactly, which was whatever it was, three days ago, um, October 6, 2020, uh, Trump's election betting odds, which is a compilation of all of the people betting on election outcomes, was at 35% chance, which does not look good, except for the fact that in 2016, the election betting odds for Trump on the same date before his election against Hillary were at 25%. So in effect, he has still has a much higher chance of winning this election than he had of winning the 2016 election. I saw a funny tweet online. They said, boy, Trump's polls haven't been this bad since the day he won the election. Leaving that aside, we don't know. You know, uh, the counter argument to that is that he was an unknown, co unknown commodity back then, uh, which is true. 
and then the and then the counter to that is that you know there's this silent majority that are afraid to tell people that they're going to vote because you know so anyway the point is that um the best possible outcome in november regardless of who becomes president is that you have gridlock so if president trump becomes president you want the uh, democrats to hold the house if President Biden becomes president, you want the Republicans to hold the Senate. Both of those scenarios are very bullish, and uh, and that's what the market is is pointing towards. So thank you again to Maria Katerina and to Yolaiwan Haryana for having me on. Uh, I'd also like to thank Devik Jain for having me in his article on Monday. Uh, it was about Regeneron shares were up 6% uh, pre-market. And my quote was, one of his treatments was an, ex uh, one of President Trump's treatments was an experimental drug from Regeneron. And that's showing that this could be a major component to treatments moving forward for people. Um, so thank you again to Devik Jane. And finally, last night, I was in an article. It actually made the front of Market Watch. Um, and this was from Sean Langlois, and basically he featured our article of the week uh, and the main arguments that we made in the argument uh, in the um, the Fleetwood Mac dreams stock market and sentiment results, which we're going to go through right now in extensive detail. So you can click here to read the full article at MarketWatch. By the way. Any and every one of these, um, and the reason the media spots are really important is because the preparation that goes into it, I'm condensing hours of information into minute spots, and same thing with the articles, so you can really get a tremendous amount. Uh, you just click on Featured On, and they're all listed there. You can watch or listen, um, or go over to Market Watch and um, uh, check this out. He titled it, uh, Don't Miss Out on This Generational Opportunity in the Stock Market. Hedge fund uh, manager says Thomas Hayes of Great Health Capital was asked whether he's putting his clients' money to work amid the volatility and uncertainty uh, since the pandemic. His answer: Yes, in fact, aggressively. And I just want to cover the the key sentence, and we'll drill down a little bit. But he's not following the herd uh, here by loading up on notable tech names like Google, Amazon, Tesla, Facebook, Apple. Uh, the big gains going forward, he said, lie elsewhere. This is a generational opportunity for some of the laggard sectors that have been left behind during the stay-at-home period of COVID. He wrote in a post on his hedgefundtips.com blog, now that we're beginning the reopening period of the COVID crisis, opportunities to position ahead of this continue, of continued treatment improvements and vaccines abound. He pointed to cyclicals, and then we go into the argument about the different sectors that are going to outperform in terms of earnings. And we go into my favorite subject, banks. Shifting gears, I want to talk about the value growth thing because we made a cogent argument for that last week. For those of you who are with us, you can go back and listen to that. But there was some good articles out this week. <laughs> it's Opinion follows trends. So we've been talking about this for a couple of months, and now everyone is talking about the rotation, and uh, everyone is starting to get involved. And wait till banks take off and they quote unquote break out, uh, and that's when people will stop, start buying them after they're up 50 to 75%. But for now, they're still down, and this is a generational opportunity. Now, seven reasons why investors should favor value stocks over growth according to Bank of America. Um, do, 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 do. Okay, the, the, this, this um, okay, so it's by Matthew Fox at Business Insider, but the analyst at BOA, 
Um, ba, 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 ba. I guess it was a team at Bank of America. So there's seven reasons, and I really liked it. Number one, it's the economy. The value outperformed the S&P 500 for the last three months around the, uh, for, oh, they outperformed for at least three months around the nadir of every economic recession we have had in the United States since 1929. I've been pounding the table on this on every media spot and every podcast for the last three months, cyclicals outperform in the early stages of a new cycle. And we are in a new cycle. We had two quarters of negative growth, one and two. Q3, it looks like we're gonna grow at 35% annualized according to the Atlanta Fed now, uh, GDP, and, uh, and 6% for uh, 2021. So listen to this. Value outperformed by about 12 full percentage points on average during its first three months of relative leadership. That's huge. That's every single new cycle since 1929. Okay, uh, point two. Style cycles are driven by profits, not rates. When growth is scarce, investors will pay up for growth. As growth broadens out, investors become more price sensitive and seek out the cheapest growth they can find. Contrary to popular belief, rates have very little impact on style rotations. We've been saying this for months. We've said it on Yahoo, we've said it on uh, One American News, we've said it on Fox, we, and it's actually in our article. And by the way, it makes me think that there are people at Bank of America that listen to this, and that's fantastic, um, because this is like word for word what's been in our articles, and people are, are getting on board with this, which means what? Institutional money is going to start to flow here, which is going to benefit all of us that are positioned for it. Um, three, positioning. Active managers maintain a near record overweight in growth sectors like TMT and a near record underweight in value sectors like, guess what? Financials. Fang carries an overweight of 1.7 times by hedge funds and 1.8 by long only mutual funds. Banks are at a post great financial crisis record underweight on almost any measure and among almost Every investor group, growth is overowned and value is neglected. Point four, value is undervalued. Okay, <laughs> value sits close to the deepest discount to momentum. The only other instances during which value traded at such a steep discount were 2003 and 2008, after which value outperformed momentum by 22 percentage points and 69 percentage points respectively over the subsequent 12 months. Okay, this is huge. So in 2003, value outperformed by 22 full percentages in the first 12 months of the new cycle. In 2008, value outperformed by 69 full percentage points um, uh, in the first 12 months of the new cycle. Guys, this is what we've been saying. And if you've been with us, you're positioned and you're rocking it. So you've, been, you've had a smile on your face for the last uh, six weeks. So... Next, abundance of, point five, abundance of mean reversion alpha. As growth has grown pricier and value has grown cheaper, valuation dispersion has risen to the highest level since the great financial crisis. When valuation dispersion has been this high or higher, value stocks have outperformed growth 95% of the time over the subsequent 12 months by an average of 24 full percentage points. This is rocking. Okay. Six, anti-monopolistic risks to growth stocks. We talk, we talk, we put it in this article this week and we've been talking about it for five weeks. As victims of the peak plutonomy uh, more forcefully express their views at the polls, 
The implications for oligopolies are greater regulation and taxes, lower PEs, profits, growth, and an eventual breakup of some oligopolies. The haves are generally growth stocks, whereas the have-nots tend to be old economy value stocks. And seven, Japanification favors value. I don't agree with this argument. We're not going to be Japanified because we still have population growth and dynamism in our economy. Um, uh, Japan is a homogeneous society with population decline, so it's a bad analogy, but what they said was we don't think it'll, uh, oh, okay, we don't think it will for a host of reasons, culture of immigrants, higher nominal GDP, more active shareholders, but similarities, low rates, aging demographics, and a closing economy, deflationary threats, and a range-bound market are hard to ignore. The Japan factor performance during the 1990s, the lost decade, indicates value was the best performing factor among the standard quantitative strategies, and that was for Japan. So, um, you know, and that was a low rate environment. So for those who think that rates have to uh, accelerate dramatically for value out to, to outperform, uh, this makes the point that it doesn't. Now, another great note uh, on MarketWatch actually, a gentleman named Larry McDonald has a bear traps um, note that he puts out, and he said value, he talked about seasonality, why are value uh why are why is value going to outperform in the short term because elections have a long-term track record of doing wonders for value stocks whose prices are deemed low compared with business prospects um the value stocks outperform growth for a for half a year after every presidential election since 1980 according to the research by larry mcdonald so they put this table here value versus growth following elections since 1980 uh, in the six months after the election, value outperforms growth by three and a half percent, five months, four percent, et cetera. So in every period after the election, it outperforms. And that doesn't take into account what we just covered, which is the beginning of a new business cycle where you get these unbelievable outperformances of value over growth in the 30s to 60s. Full percentage points. So why is that? Um, refreshingly, in this overly politicized world, it has nothing to do with politics. Value, value tends to outperform growth after elections, regardless of which party wins. Instead, it's all about the new lawmaking momentum enjoyed by the fresh faces in Washington, D.C. when they first get to town. Here's what it means. Historically, the party that wins the White House also takes the Senate, since the Senate is the typical blocking vehicle in the legislative process. This gives victorious presidents with a mandate to legislate the ability to get laws passed. That's true at least in the first two years before the Senate can change hands. And um, uh, what do they do with this new power? Politicians being politicians, they spend money. <laughs> they pass a lot of new spending bills to rev up the economy. Value stocks typically outperform uh, when growth picks up. And we've talked about this. We had the table last week. One reason is when there's more growth around, investors no longer have to pay up for what was normally uh, once a narrower swath of growth plays. We've been talking about scarcity of uh, earnings growth versus abundance and what that does. Um, Okay, so the reasons that uh, value stocks are the darlings of inflation. Um, okay, he's talking about discounted cash flow. Investors perceive value of stock derives from the present value of future cash flows, which ranch up faster, ramp up faster at growth companies than at value companies. When inflation rises, those future cash flows get discounted back at, to the uh, to the present at a higher discount rate. This dings the perceived value of growth stocks more than value stocks. Points out McDonald's. Uh, inflation drives investors out of bonds and into perceived inflation trades such as value stocks and commodities, which I spent a lot of time with Maria on uh, CNBC 
Indonesia on Monday. You can check out that video under Featured On at HedgeFundTips.com. And uh, that would be quite a move. This is an out of consensus call. So if he's right, a lot of money will move into inflation trades. He estimates about 10 trillion in wealth will make this trip out of growth and into value. Bonds will be, uh, I'm sorry, out of bonds and into value. Bonds will be destroyed and money will be forced into alternatives. Uh, inflation naturally singles out sectors that are big constituents of value, financials, energies, material, and industrials, which we've been pounding the table on. Uh, says equity strategist at the private union bank. Banks do better when the yield curve steepens, which has been happening in recent weeks. Uh, a consequence of inflation and economic growth. Inflation typically benefits energy, materials, and industrials because their pricing power and the price of what they sell goes up. Okay, so you can read that on your own. That's on the site. We actually posted that today. And this is really great that, you know, opinion follows trend. We've been pounding the table on this for a couple of months, and now it's starting to be consensus, and now money is starting to rotate, and now we're having huge benefits of this. So this is uh, really positive to see. Uh, next, a 100-year-old stock indicator just flashed a bullish signal, further market upside. This is Dow Theory. Uh, Transport's made a new high on Wednesday, and when that happens, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average follows, and that will be a very positive uh, thing in the near term, which is um, more skewed towards value than towards growth, although it's changing with some of the recent changes, but nonetheless, it, it points to good things to come. Now, um, the ask me anything questions of this week I want to get to early because we, we have got a lot of great stuff to cover today. Um, okay, so Ben asked two questions. Um, what do you think of XLE? That's the energy ETF. I 100% love it here. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in detail as to why at the end of the call. Number two, regarding the Russell 2000, doesn't that's the small cap index. Doesn't anything that goes up fast come down just as fast? Hell no. Look at the 100-year chart of the S of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It goes from the lower left to the upper right uh, in perpetuity. So no, that's a false premise. And that is the fundamental problem with most technical analysis is that there's this, um, it's, it's an embedded implicit assumption, assumption that things are symmetric to the upside and the downside, and it's simply not true. Uh, the, the market trends up over time, and we're going to actually go into some good detail about that. Um, just to sh give some quantitative data about why small caps can actually keep going for some time, uh, this was an article in Bloomberg. Small cap, uh, cheapest small cap stocks in 20 years shows the rally can keep going. They may have further go to go. Historical patterns spanning four decades indicate that the Russell 2000 index uh, Spike augurs more gains in the months ahead, according to Sundial Capital Research. Small caps are trading at the biggest discount to large cap stocks in about two decades, suggesting they are inexpensive on a relative basis. By the way, what's a huge weighting in the small cap index? Banks and energy. Here we go, guys uh, and gals. So investors have the best valuation energy entry point for small caps since March. Uh, Bank of America strategist Jill Carey Hall wrote on, on Thursday, uh, do, 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 do. Uh, Russell 2000 has been advanced more than 12% since a recent low on September 23rd, almost twice as much as the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100, a pattern that suggests many investors remain optimistic about the economic recovery and odds of further spending on pandemic relief. Uh, relief. 
And okay, the Russell rose at least 10% over a 10-day stretch some 20 times in the past 40 years and never showed a loss during the next month, according to Joseph Jason Gopfert of Sundial. And uh, Bank of America shows that small caps are trading at a 26% discount to large peers, the widest in about 20 years, and are similarly cheap compared with mid caps. So, uh, da, 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 da. okay, and then finally they show this chart here that shows the Russell breaking a downtrend line. This is a ratio chart, the Russell to the NASDAQ, which is in line with what we've been talking about, value versus growth, and it's now breaking out to the upside. So all of these things are finally coming together for us. And for those of you who've been with us the last couple of months, we've been pounding the table and we were like, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, lost in the in the wilderness by ourselves, and no one wanted to hear our story. And now everyone's singing the same tune, which is really, really exciting uh, for them, and it's really, really exciting for you and for us. Um, okay, so dividend growth investor, he puts out some good stuff here on Twitter, and I really like this chart because I wrote the same thing uh, last summer. And what he says is uh, unpopular opinion. We're in the middle of a secular bull market. And basically what he shows in, in purple here are these uh, long periods of sideways consolidation before a breakout and then a secular bull market. So the uh, sideways was 20, 1929 to 1949. You broke out in the early 50s. You rallied for 17 years to, to the uh, late 60s. Then from 68 to 82, you went nowhere, you consolidated those gains, and then you broke out in 1982, rallied up to 2020 for another 18, 20 years. And then from basically 2000 till 2014, 15, you went sideways and consolidated all those huge gains from 1982. And we've only basically been broken out for, call it, six, you know, depending how you count it, let's call it... Um, anywhere from five to seven years of what is normally a 10 to 17 year cycle. And everyone is always looking in the rear view mirror. It's called recency bias, and it's just something you have to learn through experience. What's happened most recently is not necessarily like, likely to persist. And uh, everyone's thinking, well, things are so bad, and, you know, and multiples are so high. Multiples are so high because they're, they're trading off of trough earnings. Once you get back to trend earnings, and you start discounting future cash flows a year and two years out, we're actually cheap. And certainly in, in the pockets we're talking about, historically and in some pockets, generationally cheap. And, and you know, that's called, you know, uh, banks and, and pockets of energy, which we're going to start to talk about this week. We're, it's a little early probably on energy, but I, 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 I don't. I don't, I don't mind being early. I don't have a stopwatch. I can just hang on until triples or quadruples. And Carl Icahn uh, made, made similar intimations this week. So here was the note we put out on July 5th, 2019. And we basically did the same thing. We showed these periods of consolidation. And what's interesting is when they break out, you do have these periods of what look like big corrections. They can be 20, 30% mid-secular bull. So you had it in the mid-50s, 56 to 58, and then you had it from uh, you know 60 to 62, but you kept rallying to 1968. Same thing in the 80s. I think we've just experienced exactly what we experienced from 1987 through 1990, which was a huge, they had like a 35% correction in, in a month. Uh, and we had that in uh, uh, 
March, basically, February to March. And, but if you look at this, we've only broken out, again, in the last five to seven years. And, um, you know, we're, we're still basically where we were, consolidating just like you were in 87. But they had another 12 years in the secular bull market. And I think with 85 million baby boomers, by the way, 2008 was the only recovery that was not led by housing and sick uh, housing coming out of it because housing was the problem going into it housing is not the problem going into it in in many parts of the country certainly connecticut has been in a housing depression for 20 years it's now just getting bid like crazy uh not quite 20 years it's been in a housing depression for 13 years uh, it's just now getting bid like crazy and uh, we're kind of like the last movers in that. And it's and people are like, oh, I better sell while, you know, people are bidding. This is just beginning. OK, this is just beginning. If you want a comparable to when we had uh, that number of people bidding for housing and starting housing formation, look at 1982. The baby boomers were 80 million. The millennials are 85 million. And their most popular age is 30 years old. And there's urban exodus and there's uh, record low interest rates. And there's, um, you know, and their mommy and daddy have money, you know, so they'll help them with the down payments, you know, think, you know, people want grandkids. So this is gonna, this is an exciting, exciting time. So I know it's tough, you know, having gone through this, this uh, COVID crisis for a few months. And, you know, I, I think the developments with treatments in the last week are more consequential than getting a vaccine announcement in the next month or two. That, that's my general view. Uh, I've been saying don't bet against science for the last five weeks in my notes, and we're getting science, and, and this is very, very exciting. So uh, moving along. Opinion follows trend. Guess what stock? I thought Wells Fargo was the most hated stock in the S&P 500. It's probably General Motors just got an upgrade uh, today, and he's put a 50% price target upside from, from here, calling it a leverage play on the vaccine as air travel comes back. Um, uh, you know, their aviation business is levered to that. And uh, Larry Culp has cleaned it up. And that's a, I, I give that guy credit. And he's going to be totally right. I think that's a home run. And uh, it's exciting to see that. Then you see, you know, guys like Value Act, um, who major value fund, huge position in Citigroup, uh, made a statement that uh, they expect Citigroup to double. I think all these banks are going to double in the next year and a half to two years, maybe three years if, if they screw up policy. But um, this is just, a, in my view, a generational opportunity. By the way, go to Hedge Fund Tips, click on Terms. I don't know your situation. You got to do what's right for you. Talk to your financial advisor. Uh, but um, uh, it, it's it's exciting times. Uh, this is interesting with regard to credit performance, which we're going to hear a lot about on Tuesday and Wednesday for earnings. Uh, coronavirus mortgage bailouts fall below three million for the first time since April. So in other words, all of these extensions and forbearances, people are not needing as much anymore, and they're getting back on track with their mortgages. And now on to the article of the week. The Fleetwood Mac Dream Stock Market. So I did this because there's a guy named Nathan Apodaca from Idaho Falls, Idaho, who posted a TikTok video of himself lip syncing to Fleetwood Mac's legendary song, Dreams, while skateboarding and drinking Ocean Spray Grand Raspberry Juice. I have no affiliation with Ocean Spray, but his uh, handle is 
420 dogface 208 if you want to follow him on on uh, um tiktok um you know yeah his his uh, handle leaves uh, leaves no mystery but long story short this guy completely changed his life 38 million views in the first week and uh now he's got all type of endorsement offers <coughs> etc so it just goes to show we live in a day and age where you know technology has you know people who say there's no opportunity uh for mobility are missing the boat they're just not out there and if you actually look up some interviews of this guy he's like he's been posting forever and finally something hit and he got attention and now he's potentially off to the races and you know that's the american dream and uh, and it's alive and well and there's never been a time where there's more flexibility and more ways for people to get ahead and reach people than there is right now um Okay, so the reason I chose that song, I looked up the song, and basically it was Stevie Nicks and guitarist Lindsey Buckingham were breaking up after being together for, you know, almost a decade, and Nicks says that she tried to portray a silver lining of hope in the song, and when I saw, um, you know, the lyrics, you can read them here, um, you know, in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost and what you had and what you lost. You know, deal is on, deal is off. You, you can't have it, you can't have it. Thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. And it really, it really embodies the relationship between President Trump through his proxy, Steve Mnuchin, and uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi going back and forth. I, fundamentally, my position is the same. This is being slow walked. No deal will be done before the election. And if the administration is smart and really wants to help those most in need, they're going to do an executive order quickly, get that out. And that's going to give them more leverage in the negotiations, either before the election or after the election. But the other thing that I said um, actually on Liz's show that I, I didn't mention is you got to put this into context. OK, so when the banks were taking reserves, people were looking at negative 12% GDP. That would have been $2.4 trillion, which by the way, that you know, on a $20 trillion economy, a $2.4 trillion pothole, which by the way is why the CARES Act was about, you know, $2.2 trillion was to fill that pothole. Plus you had all the monetary stimulus and lending facilities, et cetera, most, most of which didn't have to be used. But here we are now, we've already filled that pothole, okay? There's a lagged effect, so we're gonna really feel the growth next year. There's a lagged effect of every policy. It's usually six to nine months, whether it's monetary or fiscal. But, uh, so we're not even feeling the greatest benefits of it yet. But effectively what they wanna do, now the pothole's only, it's not 12%, it's only three and a half percent or $750 billion of contraction this year. And, you know, the size of the deal they're talking about is between 8 to 11% of GDP. And what I said to Liz, you're, they're trying to fill a $750 billion pothole with another $2 trillion of asphalt. And we may very well just not need it. What we do need is, is a few hundred billion dollars to get a second stimulus check out to get the extended unemployment and some PPP for the small businesses that are getting crushed on Main Street. But beyond that, and some for the airlines, so we keep that in, uh, in place. So when we have the medicine, they're ready to go and uh, off to the races. Um, so we, we just have to keep that in mind. And uh, what I put here in the article is that... Um, the administration should move and i put the link to this duke law precedent and if you read it it's i think 
like, I don't know, 30 or 40 pages of like every president and how they were able to take money that had been approved by Congress and spend it in a different way than it was approved for based on executive discretion and how they could easily do that. And I say do it and let them sue you, but get the money to the people who need it, period. So um, so that's that. We covered what, what we talked about on the uh, different shows. And now we're into the generational opportunity. So for laggard sectors that have been left behind, and uh, for the month of September, as we know, and that's followed through in October, cyclicals out, have outperformed tech, implying that the reopening trade is, uh, is happening now. Industrials, materials, transports, and financials all outperformed in techno- have outperformed technology in the last six weeks. Um, and uh, this rotation is consistent with earnings for 2021, where you're going to see... Um, Actually, I'll just maybe pull it up right now. Uh, No, we can't do that right now. Okay, so basically the sectors that are gonna go faster than the S&P 500 are cyclicals. The sectors that are gonna go slower than the S&P 500 in terms of earnings growth. Um, For instance, S&P will grow about 25%. In 2021, Texas is going to grow at about 13%. So why would you pay a higher multiple for half the earnings growth, especially when you got uh, groups like financials that are going to grow closer to 50%, uh, excuse me, closer to 30%. Um, this table really sums up actually what they actually just re- repeated in the articles we went through. When do cyclicals and growth outperform respectively? and how they're bid up and what are the catalysts um, for them happening, the vaccine being the vaccine and treatments, reopening the economy, high GDP growth favors cyclicals, energy, financials, industrials, transports, shutdowns, uh, vaccine delays, treatment delays, that favors tech because you managers have to bid up those small group of stocks that can still grow even in a slow growth economy. But we're moving into a fast growth economy, so that's that's less relevant. Uh, we talked about the, the housing recoveries. Now, um, as you know, you, we were hammering, pounding the table on media and in these weekly things in March and April on home builders. They've had a monster move. They still have, uh, they're probably going to breathe in the short term, but they've got years to go. Um, when, you know, but now we're going to talk about buying banks aggressively. Um, and that's what we've been doing the last couple of months. And um, to reiterate, when they were making these reserves, number one, due to the accounting change, and number two, the, the inputs that they were putting into their model were dramatically different than they are now. They were putting you know, negative 10 to 15% GDP growth, 15 to 20% unemployment. We're at negative 3, 3.5% GDP growth, and our unemployment has actually dropped uh, from 13 down to 7.9%. So they have to take these reserves down. When they, they release these reserves, they're going to come back on the income statement as earnings and EPS. This is not priced into many of these stocks, and I'm predominantly focused on, for the sake of this argument, uh, um, uh, article talking about the big four banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, uh, Citibank, and JP Morgan, which are going to report on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. So their guidance and further, um, you know, the consensus is going into that they're going to take more reserves 
on Tuesday and Wednesday. And I think the opposite is true. I think they're going to take less reserves than expected. And they're going to be guiding that in coming quarters. They're probably going to have to start releasing reserves because their assumptions were far too conservative and the consumer is doing better than expected. And God forbid you get another $2 trillion on top of it. They're going to have to just drop the pants off these reserves because they're way over reserved. Um, and that's all going to be, you know, if, if I'm right on the big four banks and they're over-reserved by $20, $23 billion, that's all earnings power that's not in the price of these stocks, just in four banks. You know, for the industry, what if they're over-reserved by $60 billion? You know, 60% uh, of $300 billion of checks is $180 billion. That goes a long way to pay down, you know, $111 billion of, of loan loss provisions. So, um, so that's the story. You can go into this in detail. Uh, we obviously talk about our top position, which is Wells Fargo. And so while many investors fear new credit loss provisions, the reality is the opposite may be true. The banks are likely over-reserved and investors who are positioned now will benefit from their over-caution in Q2. As they release these reserves in coming quarters, it may, re may require some patience and bearing short-term volatility, but these dislocations, valuations, and opportunities only come around a few times in a long career. Um, so that was basically that. And then we go into the update last week in the we talked about the sentiment model for um, how we expected Wells Fargo to behave. It's it's gone from enthusiasm to panic to discouragement back up to anxiety. And now it's fallen deeply into aversion and it's starting to come out of aversion into denial as it recovers and it will be at returning confidence. Once you get to returning confidence, that's when you're gonna see everyone on TV saying, buy the breakout, buy the breakout, and they'll have missed a 100% move waiting for the breakout. And by the way, they may be smarter. They didn't have to wait you know, three, four, five months, uh, and maybe they'll just make the second 100% move and be happy with that, and you know, that's good for them. It's just a different mindset. You know, there are a ton of paths to the top of the mountain. There's so many different ways to make money. You have to choose the one that best suits your personality and best suits you structurally. I mean, if you're managing larger amounts of money, you're not buying breakouts. That's like an individual trader, uh, a lot of predominantly retail people. But, um, um, Anyway, so so that's the story on that, and then we talked about. So let's let's actually just um, look at what these charts look like. Two weeks ago was absolute despondency. The Cobra Kai leg sweep article that we did. You can you can pull up any of these old articles. By the way, you go to the hedgefundtips.com, click on commentary or sentiment any of these two categories and every weekly article you can pull up every podcast we've ever done and just track what we've said and what's happened and uh i think you'll be pleased but um so basically uh this week two two weeks ago we were saying that you know it had broken support literally um Okay, this is what happened to Wells Fargo yesterday, Wednesday. Whether it was pressure on the sector from Monday's European illicit transfers allegations, which Wells Fargo had no uh, involvement, the CEO's insensitive remarks, or wholesale selling in the general market, it does not matter. What matters is there was a leg sweep that took out most of the remaining bulls in Wells Fargo stock by breaking down below a perceived level of support. This is right here, and this is when I got that tweet um, of that guy throwing the towel, throwing the towel on Wells Fargo, and look exactly what's happened in the last two weeks since we published that article. Uh, Wells Fargo is up 
this was the leg sweep right here. That was the first leg sweep in May, and then you had a 51% move in the next 29 days. This was the second leg sweep when we did the Cobra Kai leg sweep article. It is now up exactly, oh, okay, don't know where I wrote exactly. Oh, 11.78% in the last two weeks off the lows. And I think it's just getting started and hopefully uh, earnings will be the second catalyst. Now, if you look at the first leg sweep, not that it's gonna repeat or anything, um, you know, after it had that move, it did take a trace back. So maybe it'll actually take a trace back off of earnings before finally shooting up. I don't know. But um, hopefully earnings will be a positive catalyst and we don't have to go retrace this before we go up. But either way, it doesn't matter. I think we know the direction. For those of you on the podcast, we really have a lot to cover on energy, which we haven't spoken a lot in, in a number of weeks. So um, if you get cut off in the next five minutes, go to hedgefundtips.com. The video cast version will be there. It's a YouTube video. Just fast forward to minute six, the 60th minute where you got cut off and you can listen to the last 10 minutes or so uh, or watch it uh, right on hedgefundtips.com. For those of you on the video cast, we're going to keep going ahead. So, um, so that was really nice to see. And that was, you know, that was a time that was not fun. You know, you definitely broke um, support there. And sure enough, that was exactly what I thought it was, a leg sweep. And why was I so confident? Because I know what I own. I know what the intrinsic value of the business is. I know that it's only traded at this kind of discount to book only two times in the history of the stock. Both times it recovered to book in weeks, not months. I'm sorry, not in months, not years. And recovering the book would be 40 bucks a share, give or take. And it's traded as high as 1.75 times book just a couple of years ago. So if you take a long view, this could be a $60 stock. So is that worth waiting a few extra months for? In my world, yeah. So, um, uh, and you know, I can't wait till 20 years from now when I get another chance to buy it at a 40% discount to book. I'll be also buying it hand over fist. The ADX crossover, this is just a technical thing. I don't even use this in large part, but 15 out of the last 16 times you've had this cross, uh, it's rallied materially. And we saw it this week again, Wells Fargo's up another 5.5% this week since they crossed. And uh, hopefully this will just repeat its 15 out of 16 times. And they're defending here at where the uh, most volume was purchased by price and they're picking it up. So now we just need a catalyst to the upside. Hopefully it'll be earnings and guidance in the coming week, or maybe it sells off and then something else, but, uh, or they, the asset caps gets uh, lifted. But I, I do think earnings and guidance is gonna be good. I think there's still enough skepticism that we're not going into earnings too hot with high expectations, uh, that, it, that it should be a positive uh, experience. So, um, okay. Back to the article, uh, sentiment this week, all these things are in mid-range for the market, even though the market's climbing higher, we're not seeing excessive stuff. You had President Trump, um, I said, you know, when he was talking about how well he feels from the Regeneron, um, I said here, this may prove to be as, if not more important than the vaccine, and I truly believe that now. I think 100% of people, if you have a treatment they can take in a day, whether it's the remdesivir when it becomes breathable, or this Regeneron, or the Lilly monoclonal antibody, if people believe that there's something now and the death rate just now plummets, uh, people are going to just go about their lives. They'll still wear masks in public, but you know they don't have to worry about flying. They can just go to the doctor, get the script and get on with life and, and be done with it and, and in the interim build antibodies. So they probably have, you know, a few months or a few years of immunity, hopefully. We're, we More more studies need to be done on that. Um, 
Okay, and lastly, as far as the meeting of the week, uh, we were just talking about how um, the, the value trade is starting to work. And more importantly, pointing back to five weeks ago when we were saying that this antitrust stuff, you know, no one's ever been accused of being a oligopoly by Congress or a monopoly by Congress and their life got better. You know, if you look at Microsoft, these things just don't go away overnight. Uh, some people are saying, well, if they break it up, the sum of the parts will be worth more. That's true. But in the meantime, while they're dealing with it, like Microsoft, even if you ultimately win the effort and distraction of dealing with Congress and the cost takes your eye off the ball. They miss mobile completely because of it. And uh, and the same thing will happen with some of these companies as this persists. So um, so that started to play out. And that's that's helped with the, the rotation that, and the relative outperformance that we were anticipating. Um, here are some key points that they're talking about in their report that the Democratic subcommittee put together this week in the House, and they're going to retain the House. Um, multiple reforms, structural separation to prohibit platforms from operating in lines of business that depend or on or interoperate with the platform, prohibiting platforms from engaging in self-preferencing. I mean, that's their business model. Uh, requiring platforms to make its services compatible with competing networks to allow for interoperability and data portability. I mean, that that would be a death knell. Not, not a death knell, but 